All right, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, and uh, we're going to get back into the introduction here again this morning. We'll start reading in verse number 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So did ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, we introduced the, the book uh, last uh, time. We got down into verse number 2, and we introduced the, 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 the issue here that where Paul is making the claim for them uh, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And that issue here that we always have to remember that Paul never, he's going to be rebuking the Corinthians. And, and sometimes it's going to sound rather harsh, but he never says because of your bad behavior, you have lost anything. Okay, so once you're, Ephesians 1.13, when you believe the gospel of your salvation, you're immediately sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And the sealing there means uh, that issue of security, identification, and so forth. And, and it gets to be a tremendous um, importance to understand that even though you don't all, you know, we don't always live like we're supposed to be living, living in the identity that we have, living in who we are in Christ. So, you know, we slip, we fall, we bump our big toe, all of that good stuff. That doesn't mean that we lose anything. It, rather, it just means we got to get, we have to have that corrective doctrine come in and move us. So when you look at this as we go through here, these guys are sanctified. They have a standing. They have a po positional truth. And they, they just don't have their state in line with their standing. They don't have their day-to-day -day life living and looking like who they are in Christ. And, and that's very important. If you come over to chapter 15, just real quick here, because we'll, we're going to see, and we'll dive into this deeper when we get over into 1 Corinthians 15. But I just, just so you catch something here, Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. So they're saved people. They're not, okay? Then he says, If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. That isn't about their justification. It's about their sanctification. Because what's going to happen here is, they're saved, they're sealed, they're sanctified. You remember chapter 6, you were that, now you're washed, now you're sanctified. 
So there's something else happening here that they're struggling with. And that's the issue of believing in the issue of the resurrection from the dead. If you look at verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now watch. And that he was seen. Verse 6, After that he was seen. Verse 7, After that he was seen. Verse 8, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of... So that, that there's four times there where Paul makes a reference to seeing. So you guys, you remember the gospel you believed, you're saved, you're in it. But now you're questioning a component of it that is what is really that final, that, that paid in full receipt. And that's what I'm going to deal with. So when you come back here to 1 Corinthians 1, you have, he's going to talk like that all through the book. You guys are here, but yet now you're over here. Why? Because he's correcting their bad state, their bad standing. And then he says, so not only are you called, you're, you're sanctified, you're washed, you're, you're, you've got this wonderful standing, this wonderful position. We just got to get your state, your daily life to reflect that. Then he says, called to be saints, and that's our family name, and that's the name that we have as a family, okay? We are the saints. Peter calls the little flock the saints of the Most High. Daniel calls them that, and we can claim that as well. But then, yet, then if we are saints, and we are, then there is a lifestyle, family lifestyle to be lived. There's a lifestyle that as saints we are to, to function as and, and to move forward. And, and again, Nowhere is Paul going to say, if you don't do this, then you lost this. There's no threat here. There's really, there, it's a tremendous, we'll see as we go along here in the introduction here, his really his care for them, his wanting them to grow. He just can't, you can't make somebody do that. You, I, we said it in our Roman study, you can't make, I can't accelerate your, your edification. As much as I see it and I want it to happen, I can't make you do something. You have to do that. If I try to make you do something, that's legalism. That's the law. That's the threat of punishment. And uh, we, I don't have dominion over your faith, nor do I want to. I want to be a helper of your joy. So here's the information. Now, in verse 2, if you'll notice the, the way the verse ends... He'll say, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So who are those? Who's the theirs and ours? Okay, and this verse gets to be a big argumentative point sometimes with some. And, and you know, I'm going to give you my understanding, my viewpoint. You can have yours, and that's fine if you want to be wrong. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, all right. Um, I, I said that at the Bible conference, and somebody, did you mean that? I go, no, I don't mean, you know, <laughs> I was pretty dogmatic, but not about that. So, but the thing is, is there's really a couple ways to look at this, the theirs and ours. And I just want to take a few minutes, actually take as much as we need here this morning to, to deal with that, because some will say that the theirs is the little flock, the believing remnant. Okay, and that they are saints, and, and they are, because if you look at the verse, uh, 
Them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And so they'll say, see, that's the, the, the little flock, uh, that's their, them doing, that's the theirs, and then the ours is the church, the body of Christ. And, and you, anyone participating in God's program, whether it's time past, but now ages to come, what are they? They are saints. That's who they are. They're in Christ. And so the, they, some will say that's a reference to both groups, the dispensational issue. And if you want to say that, that's fine. Uh, come back with me to Romans 15. Romans 15. Some, uh, you know, and again, they are an identifiable group that are in Christ. Uh, Romans 15 and verse 25. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. Now, that's not the saints at Rome, chapter 1. That's going to end up being those poor saints, verse 26 there at the end, to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. So that little flock, they are in Christ, and they've called upon the name of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in Christ, okay? But we're not the little flock today. See, we're the church, the body of Christ. These guys are those poor saints at Jerusalem. If you look down at verse 31, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. Who? The poor saints at Jerusalem. By the way, back there, well, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 7. Salute Andronicus and Juna, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. You can never say that the little flock, the believing remnant, those who believe that Jesus Christ was Messiah and, every, and all that, were not in Christ. Mankind is in two conditions. They're either in Adam or they're in Christ. That's the only two places man can be. There's no middle wiggle ground. So those guys who believe back in time past, they believe the earthly, in the earthly ministry of the Lord. They're not the church, the body of Christ. They're who? They're the believing remnant. They're the little flock, the 12 apostles. They're in Christ. And I'm going to tell you, it's an absolute mistake to say that the believing remnant and the little flock are not in Christ. Then that means what Christ told them, you know, I'm in you, you're in me, and we're all in the Father, is a lie, and it's not. So when you come back here to, to chapter 1, verse 2, and I just want to think about the, this theirs and ours. If you want to say it's the believing remnant, that's fine. I, you know, I'm not going to argue with you because, you know, you can run, we just ran two, two, two scripture points in Romans, and you can do that. But when he talks about that, if it is, if Paul is referring to the theirs being the little flock, then we have some problems within the book itself. Because the content of the book of Corinthians, of the epistles, would then have to be directed towards the little flock. And he's going to blow up some of, the, some of the 
Israel program stuff in the book. So you're going to have some conflict because if you say, by the way, verse 2, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, see, that's going to be who he's going to. So the verse 1, here's the author, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is where? At Corinth. Now, the body of Christ is made up of a Jew and a Gentile. That's the heathen. That's what makes up heathen in Galatians 2. So when he says here, if Paul were talking about the little flock, then the content of this epistle would be directed to them as well, potentially. And then it would have an application to the little flock, and it doesn't. When we get into these details, especially when we get over in speaking in tongues and the gift stuff, and we get into issues of baptism, he says in chapter, here in verse 17, Christ sent me not to baptize. He, doesn't, he, he actually downplays the issue of water baptism in verse 14 and 15 and 16. He, Peter's promoting it. Paul's downplaying it, moving it away. It's going to go away. It's going to stop. So you've got to, if you want to say it's a little flock, that's fine. But then when we get into the content of this book moving forward, there's going to be some points that you're going to struggle to say that is the little flock. So for me, I think it's safer to recognize that as the apostle is writing the letter here, and he's going to write some corrective doctrine, which is going to specifically pertain to the stuff going on at Corinth, and the question that I would have would be, why then would he include the little flock in a bunch of carnal, carnality issues and immorality issues of Gentiles? And it, it, I don't think he does. So then, what is the theirs and ours? Well, let's start with it backwards. The ours. He's our, it, it, look at verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. You see the our? It's very interesting to watch the language. Sosthenes was the, was the leader, the chief ruler of the synagogue next door. He gets converted by Paul's ministry, and he moves over and, and, and goes to work. So the our here is obviously, verse 1, Paul and Sosthenes at least. Now come over to chapter 9. Just follow, hang on with me. Don't, don't, you know, scream and yell at me just yet. Just think about this in the book, the content here of the Corinthian letters. Look at 9.1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Now watch. Are not ye my work in the Lord? When he says, are not ye my work... That is, a, that, is a direct re, that is a reference to the direct result of the work that Paul himself was doing at Corinth. You Corinthians, you're saved, you're converted as a direct result of my ministry there in your midst at Corinth. You are mine. I go there, I've worked with you. Come over to 2 Corinthians 3. I'm going to come down in there. I'm, I'm doing work within you, within, within your, your, your members. And that helps understand the language here. So ours, 
those that are, that are really converted directly under Paul's personal ministry. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you, ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, see, and again, what ye, you're our men in our heart. How the, the love that Paul had for them, more beyond than them just being babies and carnal, because by the end of 2 Corinthians, they've turned the corner and are working things out. Paul views them as direct converts of his personal ministry. And that's the hours. All right? Now come over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 because he's going to do it here with these folks. And, and if you've ever led anyone to the Lord, worked with them about their salvation, or worked with anyone about right division and come in and understand the Word of God rightly divided, they will listen to you more quicker than they'll listen to anybody else. Why? Because you, you have a direct relationship with them. You have a deeper relationship with them. I told you, 1 Thessalonians... Hold on there and go run back to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, and look here at verse 16. Ephesians 4, 16. He says, From whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Notice all of that is internal stuff. None of that is an external working on the body. The body is going to work internally. So when you begin to work with someone internally, what's going to happen? You've got a deeper connection with them and they with you. Look over here at 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. Look at verse 19. 1 Thessalonians 2.19. In 1 Thessalonians, every chapter has some component of what we call the rapture, our exodus from the planet here. Uh, There's pieces to it. And each chapter ends with uh, chapter 1, we're waiting. Chapter 2 here, verse 19. Actually, chapter 3, verse 13, we're presented to the Father. Chapter 4, 13 to 18, here's the procedure. Here's the process. Chapter 5. Verse 23, the whole of it is given. Okay, Chapter 2 here, verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? That's a great question. Now watch the answer. Well, because you gave the gospel to everybody in the world. No. Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? And by the way, the reference there is to the judgment seat of Christ. But notice the use of are not even ye in the presence of our, see, direct converts, direct working of the apostle. And if you remind yourself where of Thessalonica, when he comes in there and the Jews come after him and they got to run, he's got to run. 
the stuff in chapter 1 where, where they became followers of us in much affliction and so forth. These guys knew they weren't following kingdom doctrine. They knew that Paul was their apostle, and we go in this way. And even though the Jews come in, the lewd men of the baser sort and all that stuff goes going on, they flee to Berea. They're under heavy persecution, heavy, heavy trial. And he calls them ours. Our. Verse 20. For ye are our glory and joy. That's wonderful. The, the language that he... He doesn't say just go and enjoy it. He says you're, my, you're ours. You're our. You're mine. Chapter 2 there, if you drop your eye back up to verse 7. Notice the care that he has for them. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. That, that nurse there is that reference to a nursing mom taking care of that newborn baby. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. That's how he felt about it. That's how he felt about everybody. But specifically here, why? Well, he worked amongst them. Verse 11, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. So you've got a loving mother and you've got a caring father. A picture of his ministry, how he, how, really how he felt for those who he directly converted into them, get them saved and then have them come to the knowledge of the truth. So the hours, when, when you look here in chapter 1, when he says both theirs and ours, I don't think he's talking about the broad church. I think he's talking about those that are his, specifically. Now, you and I are saved, justified, as a, as a law, reach, as, a, as an extension of his ministry, yes. But who converted you? Not the Apostle Paul, the person that gave you God, the, the Paul's my gospel, see. Okay, so the hours here, in, in, in looking at it and in looking at all of the content and what he's doing here, Paul's talking about direct converts at the hands of his ministry. So then the theirs, okay? And again, if you want to say the theirs are the little flock, that's fine, but I just think there's something more going on here than just little flock body of Christ, Okay. Now, when we get over and talk about the resurrection, he's going to say uh, ours and theirs. And in that context, who's he talking? He's talking about Peter and the guys, because Peter does preach the resurrection. He just preaches it a little different. Uh, well, not a little, a lot different than Paul does. And we'll see that when we get over there. So then the there here. So if the ours is Paul's direct converts, his then what is the theirs a reference to? Well, it's a reference to those who are converted indirectly, not as a result of Paul's ministry, but indirectly they are those that who are saved as, a, as, a, as someone else's ministry. They are saved as a direct result of Paul's ministry because of the downline thinking. You know, the first Amway or the first multi-level marketing program was God here. Start with Paul and it works downward, okay? But there are people who never met Paul 
and there are people that Paul never met. And yet, what you see in this there is a wonderful, a powerful testimony, a wonderful testimony of the work and the power of the gospel and the working of God's word. Because there are people that are being converted all over the region, the territory, the world, that basically the word of God is spreading faster than Paul can travel. Why? Think about this. Paul comes through Derby and Lystra. Do you know who came out of Derby and Lystra? Timothy did. But Timothy got, was converted in the first run. The second time through, and then Timothy joins him, and off he goes. But what happened there? Paul goes Derby, and he goes off. And, it's, and now you're going to have something. Look over at 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2. And, well, and, uh, shoot, go back to 1-2 just real quick, okay? So what you have here is you have the Word of God spreading quickly, and that's what Paul says there's. If you look in verse 2, notice in the middle of the verse, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see that in every place? That's the... For me, that's the little, okay, we're not talking about little flock in every place, okay? Referencing to those who are, in, they're saints, they're sanctified, but where? In every place. The little flock wasn't in every place. Come back, now come to 2 Corinthians 2, look at verse 14. Paul says, now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the Savior of his knowledge by us, where? In every place. The, the Pauline message is now going out. It's, by the way, it's a sweet smell, sweet savor, verse 15. And it's moving out through the church, the body of Christ, not the little flock. So when he uses that term, every place, I think that's the signal that the theirs and our, the theirs is not the little flock. It's these in every place out here. Come back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And here's, again, the language. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. If you look at verse 8, 1 Thessalonians 1, 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad. Now watch. So that we need not to speak anything. What's going on at the church at Thessalonica? They get converted back up there in verse 6. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. In other words, they didn't believe in the kingdom gospel. Okay? See, they, they understood, their, you know, Paul's our guy. And they instantly are converted, edified, established. And then they turn around, Acts 14, and they get out there and they're expanding. And their faith is so well known that Paul says, I don't have to go up there into that territory. I can just... You guys got it covered. I can move on and go do something else. Come over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2. 
So he's making a reference to those that are saved, but they've never met Paul. <laughs> there are people up in that area, that territory, that didn't, Colossians 2, verse 1, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Obviously not, have you, by the way, have you seen Paul? Just, you know, wannabe pictures. Come over to Romans 1, back to Romans 1. Romans 1 and verse 11. Romans 1, verse 11. Romans 1, 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. I longed... He, didn't, he had never met the saints at Rome until he lands there and they come and visit him. He's in, he's in handcuffs. He's in trouble. He never met them. He writes a whole book to a group of people he never met. I mean, you think about that. So the use of the language that in every place, again, it's referred to Paul, by Paul as a reference to those folks, members of the church, the body of Christ, that he didn't have a contact with directly. Some he does. That's ours, theirs. Those that are, that are downline, ministry, working, and so forth. So when you come back to 1 Corinthians 1, for me, again, to say it's referring to the little flock or believing remnant, okay. But I just think from the content that's going to be in the epistle, it's really not, there can be some trouble there. And uh, as, I go, as we go through it, I hope to point that out to you. But Paul, as the apostle of the Gentiles, by the way, he said, he goes, I'm not building, I don't build on another man's foundation. I'm not out here building on Peter's foundation, Galatians 1, Romans. I'm not out here doing this. By the way, Galatians 2, look, look at Galatians 2. This, it, it, you know... He's made, Paul has made an agreement with Peter, James, the, the, the half-brother of the Lord, and, and the saints at Jerusalem there, the circumcision saints, that he's not going to go mess with them. Paul never talks to the little flock. He never directs anything to the little flock. Now, does Paul go into the synagogue and deal with the Jews? Sure, but the little flock's not in the synagogues. They already understand it. That stuff's been condemned. When would that happen? Acts 7, when Peter, well, I'm sorry, when Stephen called them uncircumcised in hearts and ears. He's talking to that apostate nation. You know what they, he just declared them to be? Heathen. You're cut off. You're not God's people. Who's God's people? That little flock, that believing remnant. There's, what did the Lord say? I'm going to take the kingdom from you and I'm going to give it to a nation. See, you've got a lot going on here. So when you hear people say, well, Paul was talking to Jews. Well, yeah, but what kind of Jew? See, not a circumcised. Well, they were circumcised, but not a circumcised believer in, in Scripture. See, look at Galatians 2. He goes, him and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem. Verse 1 there, they take with uh, Titus with them. They go in, they're dealing with things there. Uh, and I went up, verse uh, 2, and I went up by revelation and, com and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus 
who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that's the whole issue. You go back in Acts 15, and you see that's the issue. But it isn't circumcised. They're telling Titus, you have to be circumcised to get saved, and you have to be circumcised to stay saved. You go back and read the beginning of Acts 15. They're not doing this for a justification. They're not demanding this for justification. They're demanding it to be a part of the religious ceremonial acts. By the way, verse 4, and that because of, notice, false brethren. Look at, you see, this is not a, this is not a frontal, this is a, this is a, a, an attack of deceit brought in who came in privately to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. See, they're not looking to set the record straight. These guys are, these are, the, these are the Judaizers. These are the Mosaic guys. These are the apostate nation. And they're trying to get Paul on some technicality here. By the way, Titus says, you touch me with that, and you're going to pick yourself up off the ground. You're not doing that. Verse 5, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. You know what happened when these guys started speaking up? Paul shut them up. He didn't even give them a minute. Well, he was rude. No, that's what you do with, with bad doctrine, false doctrine. You shut it down. You don't let it go. But watch verse 6. But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Why would that be? He's a rabbinical scholar. He understands their law. He understands Israel's time past program. He understands that. He, 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 he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was no dummy. And that's why he says he was a Hebrew. He's a Pharisee. What? Concerning the law, righteous. I mean, he, he knew what was going on. They didn't add anything to him. By the way, that's Acts 15, uh, 6 and following. Look at ver, uh, verse 7. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, and that's the half-brother of the Lord, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Okay? Come over to chapter 6 of Galatians. Verse 15, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision but a new creature. Verse 16, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon, notice, the Israel of God. That's the little flock at this moment. What's the rest of the nation? Heathen. Who, who makes up the heathen? Back in chapter 2. An unbelieving Jew and an unbelieving Gentile. And what are we going to do? Now we're going to make one new man. We're going to bring them all in under one head, under Paul's, the ministry given. And you know what happened? Peter, James, and John saw that, perceived it. Under, by the way, when he says there, perceived the grace, 
He's talking about the message, the ministry. He's not talking about, oh, God's grace is wonderful. He's, not talk he's talking about Paul coming in and saying, look, here's what God gave me. Here's what, and he's reminding them of that. They give that right hand of fellowship, and that's critical. That's the binding and loosing issue that they have, that power. And what Peter literally is doing in Acts 15 is he's releasing his apostolic power. He is no longer important. He's no longer the chief apostle. Who is? Paul is now. And he's turning that over to the apostle Paul. And then James, the believing church at, at Jerusalem, they're giving in, boom. And John, the, the sons of thunder, the last one left, his, his brother James is killed in Acts 12. That's how you know this James is not that James. He's sitting there saying, thus saith the word. It's done. It's a done deal. And so then verse 10, only they would that we should remember the poor. The same which I also was for. Why would they say that about the poor? Well, we got poor saints down here that are poor. We got saints in Jerusalem that are poor now because God changed the program. So that's the poor there. It isn't the homeless. It's the poor saint. My point is, is when Paul talks... He, know, he understands that those, he's made an agreement to go where? To the heathen. He would never violate this agreement by going into the little flock. Yeah, but Rick, he went to the synagogue. But who's in the synagogue? Not circumcision believers. They're actually scattered. They're on the run. Acts 8, 1. They're, gone, they're scattered out there. So who's in Jerusalem? Who, who's in these synagogues? unbelieving Jews. And that's why he goes in. So when you come back to 1 Corinthians 1, again, I would hesitate to say that Paul is making a reference to the little flock here. Rather, I think he's referring to theirs as in, all, in every place, those believers, members of the body who he's never met, that were converted under someone else's ministry and message, obviously, preaching Paul's gospel because they're members of the body of Christ. Why ours, those are the direct converts under Paul's ministry, okay? Now, I'm not going to argue with you about it, I, honestly. So you can do what you wish with it. I just think if you say it's Israel and little flock, you're going to have some problems as we move through the book here. As Paul, again, Corinthians, both epistles are corrective doctrine. And we're after, he's after the immorality and, and so forth. Then in verse 3, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the introductory language here used by Paul in every epistle. With the, he, he, he does this in all the epistles with this declaration of grace and peace. And it's very important, that official declaration of the attitude of the Godhead towards the world. Grace and peace today. But for the Corinthians, what do they need? <laughs> They're going to need some grace and peace. Okay? That ha the hallmark, well, one of the hallmark characteristics of the dispensation is this, the dispensation of grace, is this grace and peace. The other one is Romans 8.18, that the present suffering of the present time. It's one of the other hallmark uh, characteristics is the issue of the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be. It's that we live in a dispensation of suffering. 
That's one of those hallmark characteristics. So when he says this here, again, <laughs> so he says grace and peace. Why? Because when tragedy does happen, it's not God getting even with you. Come over to Revelation 19. It's not him trying to teach you something. It's not him trying to reach down and manipulate and to do so you'll, you'll behave better. See? We're, we're in a period of time when God is manifesting grace and peace. And the contrast, Revelation 19, 11, is that there will be a time period when he's going to do this. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. So there is going to be a day when he's going to come back, and his, his interaction with, with humanity is going to be one of judgment and war. Today... It's grace and peace. So come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So where are we in human history? We're in the grace and peace time, if you will. Okay? He's not, gonna, he's not pouring out judgment and, and wrath. Rather, he's pouring out grace and peace. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. That's very important. What's he doing today? He's reconciling the world, 2 Corinthians 5.19. He's reconciling the world. He's not, he's not what, what is he not doing? Not imputing their trespasses unto them. And hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. So the issue today is what it, he's not out there declaring war, see? He's rather declaring, I've changed the status of the world, and I'm not imputing your trespasses against you. That doesn't mean that he's forgetting about them. Okay? Second Peter 3, Peter and. You know, only an idiot would think that he's not going to do his word, <laughs> okay? Yeah, I, the idiot's my word. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that, I guess. Second uh, Peter 3, the way he, Peter says it is, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. See, he's going to do it. He, one day he will impute their trespasses unto them. Right now, he's not. Right now, what's he doing? He would have all men be saved. Grace and peace, see. So what did he do? In order to declare grace and peace, he, he changed the world's status. He set Israel aside. He interrupted their program, started the dispensation of grace so that he can declare grace and peace. So when you come into the scriptures, come back to Matthew 3. In the prophetic scriptures, God is... He's announcing impending wrath and judgment upon the entire world. And in time past, where we're at, that's where we're at in human history. It's time for judgment and wrath. Notice Matthew 3, uh, just jumping into John the Baptist here, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism... He said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
And that phrase, the wrath to come, is coined here by John the Baptist. Now, here he is. He's out water baptizing. Why? Because there's wrath coming. See? And what do we need? We need the Messiah. We need to announce the, the, the Messiah. Here he comes. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's wrath coming. By the way, the generation of vipers generate, generate, not generation in 40 years, but generate of vipers. Who's, who's the snake in the Bible? Well, the ad, Satan is. That's why later in John he'll call him, you're of your father, the devil. See, what's generating these guys? That old pagan, heathen, apostate religion. Verse 11, I, John, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see, John knows what wrath is. He's not, he doesn't, wrath of men, wrath of God, wrath of... No, that's just theology talk. No, he knows what the wrath is. He know, and he knows it's coming. And this is exactly what the prophetic scriptures had predicted. War and judgment at the hand of God. And by the way, what water baptism is going to do is that's, that's the mechanism by which a, a Jew over here gets... It was... <laughs> was going to be out, come out of that apostate nation and placed into the little flock, the believing remnant. That issue of water, baptism, baptism, identification, how? By water. Why? They're going to be a kingdom of priests. And what do you do with the priests? You wash them down. You clean them up. See? So when he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he talks in verse 12 about what that wrath is, that unquenchable fire John's very clear. And guess what? They get it too. Now, come on over to Acts 2. Fast forward here. Acts chapter 2. So, in, by the way, in, in Matthew 3, verse 12, John the Baptist is talking about the second coming. He's talking about him coming back and pouring out, doing what Revelation 19.11 just told us. Acts chapter 2, we fast forward. We're on the day of Pentecost. The Lord is ascended. Verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Okay, so that's where we're at. That's what Peter and them go out there and do. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord, by the way, that's the judge, back up in verse 20, okay? And Christ, that's verse 30, their, their Savior sitting on the throne of David. Now watch verse 37. Now when they heard this, so what did they hear? By wicked hands you crucified the Messiah. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again over there, and he rose to sit on the throne where our future rests in, in that kingdom over there. And by the way, you crucified him. You did this. So what do they say? They're pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be 
baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the... You see how Peter... There's no... They, they say, we messed up. Peter doesn't hesitate at all, does he? What does he say? Repent and be what? Baptized. You've got to have John's baptism. Verse 39. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. Now, that's not Gentiles. That's what? There's those scattered out there all over. They, back in chapter 1, they've come from every nation under heaven. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying... Watch, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, you can't save yourself. Peter just said what? Save yourself. Paul says, you can't save yourself. See? So what is Peter saying here? You need to repent and be what? John's baptism. You need to be identified with that believing remnant. So what, what, really what Peter's doing is reaffirming the ministry of John the Baptist. He's literally preaching the same message that John was. John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Right? You need to repent. You need to be baptized. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what Peter says? You got to save yourself from that untoward generation. You got to get out of that apostate nation. How do you do that? You first, you're, you repent and you're water baptized. So there is an anticipation of wrath to come. They're not sitting here going, well, in about 5,000 years, it'll happen. They're anticipating what? Wrath immediately. Why? Because the Lord in his earthly ministry and in the time that he spends there in the 40 days, he's getting them ready for the kingdom. In Matthew, he's taught them all about what's going to happen in the 70th week. He's getting them ready. That's why Matthew has a dispensational tone to it, a movement here. And what... Peter just picks up on it and keeps rocking along. Come over to Acts 7. There, there's an offer of deliverance and rescue from wrath. How? Get out of that untoward generation. Get over here where you're supposed to be. Acts 7, you come to Stephen, a man full of the Holy Ghost. Verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. I mean, he just nailing them. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. Verse 54, And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Stephen looks up there, and you know what he sees? He sees the glory of God pictured out there in the armies of heaven. Michael, they're all ready to come back. It's time for war and wrath. And then he sees the, the, the Savior standing there, Jesus standing there, Isaiah 3. You go back there, and he's going to stand to judge and to plead for Israel. He, it's, it, it's time to pour out the wrath. It's time. The, the, the climactic point, Israel has once again rejected a renewed offer. The, the world is on its own. He let that go. He gave them up. And they're right there where it's verse 59. 
and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and he cried with a loud voice, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul was consenting unto his death. There's a guy named Saul there who probably, if the Lord doesn't do Acts chapter 9, is the, he's the leader of the rebellion, <laughs> doesn't stop him on the road to Damascus. He's, he's the next, you know, rabbinical scholar, if you will. He, he could literally have been the Antichrist. He matches up in it. But yet, what did God do in Acts 9? He converts Saul. Come over to 1 Timothy 1. He converts Saul on the road to Damascus. 1 Timothy 1. And in doing that, he tells Ananias, he's going to represent me in front of Gentiles and kings and Israel. The order's out of order now. It's all whacked up. It's all messed up in, in the book of Acts. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Notice, if you will, just verse 15 here. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Not the worst one. The chief, the leader, the leading leader of the rebellion. Howbeit, for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first, and again, I'll remind you, in me, not by me, not with me. Where's God working? In Paul. And again, that goes back to Galatians 1 to reveal his son in me. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Some key words there. Mercy, long-suffering, grace. You've got to, he had the right to declare war and judgment. He had, the, he had the right to take the vessels of fitted for wrath and destruction and to deal with them. But yet he also had the right to do what? If God willing to show his wrath, he came over here, that's Romans 9, he came over and he says, you know what, I'm going to take those vessels fitted for wrath and I'm going to make them into vessels of mercy and honor and grace and peace and long-suffering. He didn't do that. He Rather, he pours out grace and peace and mercy and long-suffering and love and joy and all of those fruit of the Spirit issues. So when you come back to 1 Corinthians 1, Verse number three, I know, you know, we see that. It's more than just a great salutation. It's rather the language is it's, it's of dispensational significance because here's the way that God views and deals with history. He's not angry at the world. He's not, 2 Corinthians 5, and I know what they use 2 Corinthians 5.19 to say that he, at Calvary, he forgave everybody their sins. They just don't know it until somebody comes over and shows them the gospel, and then they believe that. So right now in hell, there are people with their sins forgiven in hell. What? And they use 1 Corinthians 15, or 519, sorry, I'm sorry. They use 2 Corinthians 519 to do that. Why? Because he's not imputing their trespasses and sin. Well, he's going to get them one day. What's he doing today? Grace and peace. Okay. What's he, what's he, you and I are his ambassadors. We have a job to do. We go out into that world. By the way, the world is fit for wrath. See? 
But yet, what did he do? He reconciled, he changed that status from vessels of wrath to vessels of mercy. And our job is to go out there and tell the, the only time we ever know that we have peace with God is Romans 5, verse 1. It's the only place that phrase, peace with God, is used. It's not the peace of God. It's peace with him. He's not angry. Why? Because you're justified. He hates sin, but he dealt with it. See, he dealt with sin. He's never having to deal with sin again. He's dealt with it. But yet, here we are. So when you come back here to 1 Corinthians 1, there's also a significant, I think, it's going to happen here as we go forward. Because now in verse 4, down to verse 7, Paul is going to focus in on something here very, very interesting here. And it's going to have to do with, with what God is doing in and through the Corinthians. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given to you by Jesus Christ that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that ye come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we'll, we'll pick up here because Paul is now in this introduction going to tell us where his focus is going to be now in dealing with, with the poster children of carnality and uh, rebellion and immorality, the Corinthians. And uh, again, he's going to demonstrate grace and peace. God's not angry with them, but he's not happy with them as far as their behavior. Their state is not matching their standing. Okay? All right, Dearly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word, and above all, Lord, we just thank you for who we are in your Son, and we thank you for your grace and your peace. In your name we pray, amen.